to Look-See, the podcast for the art-curious in Richmond and beyond. I'm Paige Goodpasture. Since the 1960s, multidisciplinary artist Howardina Pendel has been pushing the limits. She was one of the first women of color to curate at a major museum. She was an abstract painter when black artists were expected to represent their ideas figuratively. And she was overt about social and political issues when abstract artists were expected to produce work free of such, quote, impurities. She broke the boundaries of painting itself, using unconventional materials and techniques in her work from the beginning of her career. And she continues to challenge art world dogma, both with her words and with her art, as her career moves into its sixth decade. A major survey of her work, Howardina Pendel, What Remains to be Seen, is currently on view at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. I recently sat down with Howardina Pendel, as well as Valerie Cassell Oliver and Naomi Beckwith, co-curators of the show, to talk about the exhibition. We talked about Howardina's work and some of the biggest questions swirling around art today. I am here at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts today with Howardina Pendel and Valerie Cassell Oliver and Naomi Beckwith, who are the co-curators of this incredible exhibition, uh, retrospective exhibition of Howardina's work that is on view currently at the Virginia Museum. And we are just thrilled to have this exhibition here at the Virginia Museum, and I am thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with the three of you this morning. So thank you so much for being here. I wanted to start out by talking with you all about the title of the exhibition. So the title is Howardina Pendel, What Remains to be Seen. I'm Valerie Cassell Oliver. I am the Sydney and Francis Lewis family curator of modern and contemporary art here at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. I think when we were compiling the exhibition, knowing that it would be 50 years of work, What we wanted to signal that even though it was a retrospective, that it wasn't an endpoint, that it was primarily a platform to take a moment and take view of what had been created over the last five decades, but then to also signal that this is work that continues and that she's an artist that continues to produce extraordinary works of art. I am Naomi Beckwith, and I am the Manilow Senior Curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. Oftentimes, when we talk about retrospective, that means we're at an end point looking back. But her life continues, and if there's something that is true is that Howardina is so prolific. She is still working, still making, so there's more to come. But there was another illusion, too, that's in the title, and that is we love the fact that Howardina never throws anything away, and she she talks about this often. (laughs) And so things that remain from other projects, cutouts, stencils, hole punches, fabric, these things actually work their way into newer objects. There's a way in which the remains of things actually come up to be seen later, too. We're still discovering things from the apartment uh, and studio, things that are still coming to the fore. As Naomi mentioned, we were asking just the other day about a sculpture that was in a photograph, and 
Howard Dana's response is, it's probably somewhere. And I think eventually that piece will reveal itself. Mm-hmm. Because the, the one thing that is true with artists who have been working for long periods of time and working in, in, in points where their work goes under-recognized is that they hold on to things and that those things get stored, sometimes from view, but never truly forgotten. But it, it has to come back to the fore. And I think all the attention and exposure is prompting, is creating a momentum to take stock of what is where. And uh, and that's a very exciting period. And we're, we're always learning. Always learning. Okay. Yeah. This exhibition really is just a peek into the work of such a prolific artist. As you all were explaining what remains to be seen, I was wondering, too, one of the things that is so wonderful about this exhibition is the opportunity for me as a viewer to see themes and threads come in and out of the work over time from the very beginning to the the latest pieces that are on view in the exhibition, just as Naomi was describing you keeping all of the physical objects and materials, the, the sort of detrius that could be useful later in your process. Also, it seems as though maybe that is the case with ideas as well, that there are things that you explore in a certain time period of your practice that then weave themselves back into the work and those ideas also remain and remain to be seen in different ways. My name is Howardina Pindell and I've had the good fortune of having an exhibition here at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. I'm just very moved to be here. Well, I just don't throw anything out. I would say my work in a museum really helped me to see how valuable it is to keep your work. I, I try to keep everything, and it's a mystery to me in terms of that little piece of sculpture. Where could it be? And yet, about two weeks ago, one of my assistants unearthed a plastic crate of small works very much related to the baseball piece, mm-hmm. and we were like stunned. It was hiding in my storage. So things sort of become, shall we say, unearthed at unexpected intervals. So I'm hoping that maybe if I explore a closet and for in not in the foyer, maybe I should do that though, <laughs> or <laughs> the closet in the in the hallway, that buried there is this one piece of sculpture. And I actually didn't like that piece of sculpture, so I sort of pushed it away. But no, I don't throw things out. You were speaking of your museum work. For the early part of your career, you were a curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I believe you were the first African-American woman. There was Lowry Sims. Both of us were the only curators of of color. Um, I was in the group that helped unionize the museum. I mean, working at the Modern is a little bit like being a gladiator in the Coliseum. You know, you have to watch your back. Now there's a whole new group of people. I don't know, you know, the people that are there now. But it was pretty raw when I was there in terms of competition. There were gifts that you, you know, from working there, you learned about the importance of archival materials, and you were able to, I know you've spoken before about how important it was to you and to your work to to have access to that collection. 
but also there were a lot of challenges. And many of those, at the time you were there, ran along race and gender lines, which also is a theme that runs through your work over yeah. time. So those experiences, I'm sure, had some influence yeah. over your, um, your later work. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoyed walking through the exhibition is, is being able to sort of encounter these mm-hmm. themes. And one of them is this idea of self-portraiture or autobiography or bringing your own personal experiences into your work and, and using that as a way ultimately to push these ideas and issues into the viewer and the broader public's consciousness. So the very first piece in the exhibition, I think, is a self-portrait that you did when you were an art student. Your work has moved far away from that figurative, conventional style of painting, and I enjoyed being able to to have the opportunity to see that. And then as, as you go even just through that, those first galleries, there are some very large-scale paintings that are part of your autobiography series that is another place that you bring in your own figure. Maybe you could talk about how that figuration, because you moved completely away from figuration for a while into pure abstraction, and then the figurative motifs came back into your work. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how and why that happened. Well, it actually happened because I was in a bad car accident, and I ended up with a concussion and some problems with my hips. So after the accident, you began to explore again the figure and an imagery in your work that had been largely absent prior to that. I think that when you wake up and you might have been dead, you kind of reevaluate yourself and your work. And I wanted to put my experience into the paintings. I also wanted to explore political issues that I found, you know, very unsettling. Uh, so the work shifted. I started driving nails into the uh, some of the works on paper, uh, which reminds me a little bit of African art uh, in Kisi. But I wasn't as aware of that. I just simply, when I saw in Kisi, I thought, oh, my God. But no, it's just I had a lot of, I think, anger and hurt from being hurt, you know, and being in the hospital for a while because of the concussion. And I just seemed to find my voice after that because I felt it was urgent to make your thoughts and experiences known, even if it's just to yourself, because of life being fragile and potentially something could happen, I'd be gone. Yeah. They're such striking pieces. I had an opportunity to walk through the exhibition again today and to really pay attention to some of the smaller scale works that are also part of that autobiography (laughs) series. And It's very engaging the way that you have used all of the different media and texture and the way that the canvases are cut and Mm -hmm. and re-sewn and so sort of simple and elemental, Mm -hmm. but yet with these complex compositions on them. And I really enjoyed being a viewer. Mixing the two, the abstract, Uh, for example, the painting Scapegoat, it mix, mixes both figuration and abstract. But there are funny things that there are kind of premonition things in my paintings, and uh, I just don't like that. <laughs> I don't want that. I guess one example, like in the triple image of me, the person that's furthest away was an old boyfriend. I couldn't get him out of the painting. I tried so hard to paint him out of the painting, and I wanted it to be just me at a younger age. And finally, I just gave up. 
I left it. But anyway, I just kind of am cautious of the premonition side uh, that appears to creep in when I'm mixing figurative and abstract. Right now, I'm working primarily with abstract, but I'm also doing um, pieces for a new exhibition space in the city that's being built called The Shed. One of the pieces I'm working on is about nine by nine feet with hands that are cut off at the wrists, and it's about how when King Leopold of Belgium went into the Congo, uh, he would have people's hands cut off if they did not agree to work for free on the rubber plantations. The piece will have uh, silicone hands, which if you've seen silicone, it's very rubbery and bouncy. That'll be on the floor, and then a bucket of stage blood, and then the wall, uh, the nine-foot piece, will have hands done in a way where it looks like you see hands at a distance and hands that are closer, and then there'll be text, you know, talking about how this happened in the Congo, but then also Columbus did that in the Caribbean. He told the Arawak Indians and the Taino, if you don't bring me gold, I'll cut off your hands. One point I wanted to make about the Congo is some of our major wealthy families benefited from it, and they laundered the money through culture. So when I go to a museum now, I think, oh, this is like, you know, like blood diamonds. This is blood art <laughs> in terms of how they took their money and recycled it, shall we say, laundered it. People don't ask questions in terms of what is the source of the wealth. And that's one of the things that you have spoken about as being very important to you in your work is this idea of engagement and of connecting yourself first and then the people who are viewing your work with history and current events and, and making people aware of what, of what is going on in the world around them and what has gone on, what is the history. You've talked about wanting to draw viewers out of their own experience and to, I don't know that you use this word, but it brought to my mind the, the idea of empathy, being able to not step in someone else's shoes, because I think that's actually impossible. Really, all we can do is try to understand a little bit better someone else's experience. But at the beginning of your career, at that period of mid-20th to late 20th century abstraction, that was kind of a no-no in the art world. You know, that was not pure, that abstraction wasn't mm -hmm. supposed to contain these kinds of political and, and social ideals. And so when you first started exploring those ideas mm -hmm. in your autobiography series and others, what was that like for you as an artist in New York City? Mm -hmm. Being abstract was also frowned upon in the black community in the 70s. and people like Bill Williams and myself were thought of as kind of almost traitors that we should be doing work that is specific to the black community. And I remember both Bill and I at different occasions went to the Studio Museum in Harlem with our work and the director told us to go downtown and show with the white boys. But then, I mean, there were a couple of things that made things shift in the art world. For example, the NEA cut off funding to the artists. So what happened was the corporate side of the art world stepped in and started funding things, but funding things that they like. I'm very grateful now that Trump is not concerned with culture. And then I started thinking, well, Hitler was an artist, and he went after artists. And he uh, labeled art as degenerate, you know, and then he had his own preferable choice of what visual culture he would not destroy. We're talking about this idea of engaging the viewer with these social and political mm -hmm. 
ideas that you would like for people to think more deeply about and that you are thinking deeply about and that deeply affect you. Hitler very much believed that art was powerful and so he controlled what was seen and what was held up as quote good art and versus degenerate art. And some people argue that art really doesn't affect the culture at large. You know, after 50 years as an artist who has for most of your career been and still working on work that is very much, you know, hopeful about the effect that you can have on the culture at large, you know, where, how do you think about that, that right now? Well, it's kind of, I write also. And so sometimes I feel that I'm more articulate writing than painting. I'm working out primarily with abstraction, but then there's the counterbalance with the shed. I mean, I see the arts as a very small community in terms of the world at large, but then artists are the ones that create everything. You know, how this table's designed, or chair, or, you know, even that free Wi-Fi sign. (laughs) There's someone out there who is working within visual culture, but from the commercial aspect. And I think that affects all of our lives in terms of the sort of rarefied area of art galleries and museums. Like sometimes I think of New York and the art world as a very tiny piece of real estate. I mean, it's bolstered up by corporate culture in terms of the people who have money who can afford to buy. But what I noticed with Obama in, a lot of artists of color came out of the woodwork. It was more supportive, uh, an environment for artists of color and for artists in general. I think with Trump, it's like a blind spot that he has, mercifully. But because of his policies and, you know, his kind of outrageous outbursts, he is unifying groups of people, including artists, to protest, to push back, you know, even if under Obama, these particular groups of people wouldn't get together because in a way they might say, oh, well, that's over with. I I know a number of young African-Americans who said, basically, I don't want to hear about civil rights. It's all past. Everything's better. And I thought, oh, my God, Trump's in. What are they thinking now? You know, so it's, it's helping to clarify for some of the younger generation that thought it was all over. I mean, that things are better to see that the empathy that developed under Obama was fragile. Naomi and Valerie, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about both of your views on this issue of art and social and political change. Naomi, you are in Chicago, and I think of Chicago as being an arts community that is, as a whole, more diverse and particularly welcoming to black artists. There's a good, solid, critical mass of of black artists working in Chicago and as being a place where that is a little bit more forefronted than maybe in some other communities. And Valerie, the Virginia Museum has, within the past decade or so, really committed itself to this idea of representing more fully the community that it exists in. We are having lots of discussions about public art art in Richmond. So I wonder, I'd love for each of you to speak a little bit about your thoughts about what what do you hope and expect that people will take away from art that tries to get us to think a little bit more about some of these issues? This is probably one of the more pertinent questions of our time. The overarching question is, what sort of America do we want to see? The other questions that get wrapped up in that are, what value do we ascribe to art that 
begins to maybe form or even push against uh, that vision of the world or the America that we want to see. And lastly, how do we remain sensitive to folks who may fall outside of that working way? Chicago is incredible. I remember a historian, Tony Jute, once saying that Chicago is the quintessential American city. It's not one market that runs the place. It's not one industry that makes the city. It's a proudly immigrant city. It has for a long time been a majority minority city. In fact, I probably think for all of its existence, it has been even though the shifting conversations and definitions of minority and majority shift. So it's a place where people have to understand what does it mean for cultures to live together and to collide. And the art world has very much reflected that and I think honored that in Chicago. And as you mentioned, so many artists of color have found careers, legacies, institutions to support themselves there. We are in a moment now where we are asking a lot of institutions and a lot of artists, and I think we should. We're asking those institutions to be sensitive to the structures and legacies of inequality that have allowed them to thrive, that subconsciously we may even be enacting. We've also allowed artists to help elucidate for us a more just world or tell us about injustices. And there are incredible, incredible examples of that happening. The wonderful artist Dabu Bey just did an entire series thinking through the Underground Railroad, taking a photographic cities going from south to north through the Midwest to Canada, following the landscape that an escaped uh, enslaved person would have seen at night. There's someone like Carrie James Marshall who does these monumental-sized paintings that give us the most romantic and beautiful view of black life. And it's not a life that is, it's not by any means financially wealthy, but it is a life that's rich in culture and love and history. People yearn for these kind of things. But we also have to ask, what do we do with the artists who don't work in figuration? What do we do with the artists who work in abstraction and in sound and who do these kind of experimental performances? How do we also begin to make language around that work and say that that work may not represent a certain aspect of black life, but what it may do is talk to us about a wealth of cultural production that we all need to bring in, again into these institutions that may at times forget this. We see Haradina's life working through exactly that dynamic. Abstract in a moment when it was great for the academy, not great for the civil rights movement. Figurative at a moment when it was, you know, not great for the academy, but then great for the civil rights movement. And then the market is another concern all together. We as curators, I think, and we as cultural workers have to always be aware of all those things working together to think through the cultural world that we have to always be as expansive as possible in presenting. We have to, as Howardina says, we have to preserve things and archive things. Don't throw things away physically, but don't throw things away conceptually either. Pull those things together to always try to have as inclusive as possible a view of culture and history.
And Valerie, so now you are here in Richmond. We're so happy that you are and have already expanded both the collection of the museum and also what's on view and, and how it's hung. I loved walking to one of the galleries in which Howardina's work is being shown and seeing the Kehendi Wiley painting hanging with all of the traditional uh, monumental paintings on which his work is based and inspired. The other gallery where Howardina's work is right now, the 21st Century Gallery, had many works from the permanent collection, Theastra Gates, a Chicago artist, you know, many other works that, that were really wrestling with these issues, even Sally Mann's work, wrestling with the ghosts of Civil War battlefields from the perspective of, of a white Southern woman who is trying to change her own perception about where she has grown up. And, and so as a curator... What are your expectations and hopes for what people take away from that experience, whether it's viewing this beautiful exhibition of, of Howardina's or the permanent collection of the museum? Well, it's very interesting having landed here a year ago and coming from an institution that was a non-collecting institution, coming from one that was focused on contemporary art and to land into an encyclopedic museum, which has been phenomenal. My focus has always been contemporary art and the practices that artists are embarking upon that really stretches, that really focuses on innovation at times. At times it reaches back into the past. Some of it is playful, some of it is somber. A lot of it takes our communities to task. It holds a mirror to uh, where we are in a particular moment. And oftentimes, as a curator, you're writing that history as it happens. The beauty of being in this encyclopedic museum, which is so rich, is that it allows me to make the connections in the moment that's happening contemporarily with those that have happened in the past. And to build those bridges throughout, oftentimes people see contemporary art as set apart from, when in fact it is a part of a longer trajectory. And to be able to make those connections, it's really the ideal. We are living in a time where we feel that we are disconnected from each other. And the reality is we are more alike than we are different. And there are universalities that we're all grappling with. And allowing the artists to have a platform to show that through their work, it's a poetic ideal to think that artists are locked within a studio that is impenetrable from the world. That is not the reality. Artists are citizens of this world, and they use their works, sometimes in service of being a citizen. Oftentimes, they just infuse their works with their own experiences, which may or may not be readily accessible to a viewer. The artist is always who they are in that moment in the world. So it's extraordinary, and I, and I hope that they see and that they take away that uh, those connections are, are, are being made, whether it is an immediate revelation or whether it's something that they go away and realize at a later date. I think in seeing Howardina's work, you're able to see those moments of unfold across time and when and where figuration enters, 
when and where abstraction is apt for the time, that innovation is always at play, that an artist never truly leaves who they are behind. There are very early political works that are in the exhibition from 1967, that beautiful collage, which is in the Evans Court Gallery. So artists move in and out of how they want to work. And as Naomi alluded to, as curators, we have to allow them the bandwidth to move in and out and be at liberty to play, to be at liberty to criticize, to take us to task, the institutions even to task. We are losing a sense of literacy, visual literacy in our culture. And it is our job as cultural workers, I feel is my personal responsibility as a curator to allow the language to be made visible. I'm as much a teacher as I am a curator. And Howard, you know, one of the things that I love, so the last gallery in the exhibition has mostly recent works. And one of the things I loved is that there are these sort of joyous, abstract, collaged works that kind of are, are a lineage, a very clear lineage from, from when you first started working with dots and grids and then started adding different materials and three-dimensionality and... and I'm using my hands to describe the, the the texture of your paintings is so incredible. And it's at this point that I always have to say to people who are listening, you have to see this work in person. Come to the museum and see this work in person. It's so incredibly beautiful. And so there are these works that that when I view them, the feeling that I get is just joy. The color, the beauty of the images, the clear pleasure that you took in making the pieces. I love the materiality and the color in those works. And yet, on an opposing wall in that same gallery are paintings that are very dark, both in their subject matter and also in their color. I mean, some of them are literally black on black. And you're almost doing those things at the same time. You mentioned that you're working on this painting about the Congo, or it really sounds like almost an installation piece about the Congo, while at the same time working in abstraction. I can imagine that those paintings might be more similar to the spiral collaged paintings. As an artist, it sounds like, you know, these ideas are both present and that part of your work as an artist is finding balance? Well, I think I need to do both in order to create, as you mentioned, balance. Because if I just do the work about issues, you get really depressed. <laughs> and I have a lot of fun with the others. But then in the back of my mind is I should be doing the other. So they kind of feed on each other in a positive way. There's a new piece I'm working on now that will be part of my abstract work, where I, I love to sew. I'm sewing the piece together. I don't know, the process itself, for me, gives me a certain kind of peace of mind. With the others, I wouldn't call it peace of mind. Maybe I get more kind of clarity about things that I find that concern me, and also feel motivated by the fact that I can tell that story out in a public forum. Some communities are very sheltered, these sound like a lot of the same issues that you dealt with in a much more kind of in-your-face way in your video, Free White and 21. And it's sad to think that that video was made in 1981. 80. Is that right? 80. 80. And that here we are 
38 years later and and still there is such a lack of awareness yeah. about the invisible to white people yeah. privilege yeah. that still exists. Naomi and Valerie, what haven't I talked about that you all would would really like to share? The word I often think about when encountering Howardina's work and encountering her life story is multiplicity. And this word is so important in trying to both encapsulate her practice, one that is you know, now over 50 years strong, and one that has moved through so many formal aspects and conceptual aspects and moved through media and has experimented across media. It's difficult to encapsulate that in one show, but the best challenge in the world because you begin to make a narrative around threads that walk through all these projects. One of the difficult things for a lot of people, especially critics for Howardina's work, is how do we make sense of what happened before 1979 and what happened after 1979? And the answer is, well, it was a shift but not a radical break. Because if you look at these works that are figurative, the techniques and forms that she puts into those figurative works are exactly what she'd been doing in the 60s, really starting to develop in the 70s. If you look at some of the themes and images in the video drawings, which are actually chance operations, it's, you know, turn on the TV and, 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 and put the shutter on the camera and see what works, there's still some of the exact same framing and forms from the early paintings where you see baseball players on the mound. So there's a way in which the work comes full circle and there's no mistake that Val and I decided to end the show with works that are in the shape of a spiral. Because the spiral is exactly that thing, that line that goes out into space but turns back on itself. And so that multiplicity of practices and indeed the multiplicity of careers as in Howardine has been a teacher and a curator and an educator and a writer and a statistician. All those things began to form a practice that moves out into the world but also comes back to these core beliefs at all times. Well, maybe because I'm not a critic, I didn't really have that issue. Mm. You know, when I walk through, I see these threads coming to the surface and submerging and coming to the surface. It is a continuous spiraling journey or elliptical journey and that was one of the things that I love about the show. I would say you know artists come to the fore and then they recess from our imagination and from the market and from the the visibility and just general visibility but that doesn't mean that artists are not working doesn't mean they stop creating. They are constantly moving in their practice. And, and I think it's very important. I mean, Howardina has been at the fore of her own practice and in her own engagement for five decades, oftentimes working without a spotlight uh, being shown on the work. It's important to know that artists continue to create uh, whether they're in the public eye or not. I could not be more thrilled to have worked with Naomi in bringing this very important work to the fore. You really do see how artists do have an impact 
in moments and in time, and just over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Naomi alluded to the fact that Haridina has been a teacher for 40 years. Yeah. Many artists have been touched by her, many who are living right here in Richmond, Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary to know that people can have that kind of impact, oftentimes right underneath our very noses and when we're not looking. Well, Valerie Gazel Oliver, Naomi Beckwith, and Howardina Pindell, thank you all so much for this gift of your time and a very busy day and week. And thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me for Look-See. People must come and actually see this show in person. It is just so beautiful, moving, thought-provoking. Thank you all so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you you for such sensitive questions. That's it for this episode of the Look-See Podcast. You can find much more to watch, read, and listen to about the visual arts on our website, lookthensee.com. You can also find a comprehensive, up-to-date listing of artist talks, art exhibitions, and more. So go out and see some art. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thanks for listening. 